these are the lessons I learned from them. And so I went back to the interviews and I looked for those nuggets. I looked for those things. Um, and not just that had meaning for me, it just, you know, as I was doing all of those interviews, I kept thinking, you know, the reason why this is valuable to put on the air or on the internet is because these are lessons for anybody. You don't have to be an artist to learn from these people. They're telling you to be tenacious, to stick to it, and don't give up, just do it. I mean, you hear that in athletics, you hear that in almost every industry. So my hope is that people who pick that up, even if you don't ever put a pen to paper or a brush to canvas, you will learn something that'll help you. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the story behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Dana Kester McCabe, author of the Delmarva School of Art. Dana is an artist and writer with over 40 years of creative experience and also owns Moonshell Productions. For this project, Dana worked with 46 artists from the Damarva Peninsula and curated a book full of beautiful artwork and wonderful insights and advice for artists and art lovers alike. So welcome to the podcast, Dana. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you here because this is one project that um, from the very beginning I was super excited about. Um, mostly because when I when I got their material, I saw names like Patrick Henry and Lynn Lockhart and Kirk McBride and Eric Saylor. And I was just so excited to see that someone had put all of these really incredible people in one place. And I guess I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about like what inspired you to kind of start this project. Well, it started with another project, the Delmarva Almanac, which was an online culture magazine that I had for several years, and then I did about a season and a half uh, on NPR local, uh, WSDL, WSCL, uh, and I interviewed in that process about 112 artists, and I felt like I had gotten a master's degree in fine art. Right. (laughs) My bachelor's is actually in painting. Sure. Um, But, and I'd always thought about going back for my master's, but just... Uh, meeting and talking to these people. We had so much in common, and I felt like I was learning things all over again, but also some brand new things. And I thought anybody who wants to make art would love to learn these things. If they didn't get to hear it on the radio, and they on the radio you don't get to see all the beautiful artwork. Right. Sure, sure. <laughs> so it just seemed like a natural fit. And so I asked um, all of the artists if they wanted to participate, and I was able to get 46 to do so. Uh, which is not always easy. Artists aren't always um, real focused on this kind of promotion, mm. and so and they're not always real comfortable even talking about themselves. Sure. So they're they're busy making art. Uh, but anyway, forty six artists who are really good cross section of artists and the kinds of art being made here on the shore um, agreed to participate. And so I'm glad that some of my favorites were in there, particularly the ones that you mentioned, who I all have known for years. Uh, I've been here since 1980, and I've we've been traveling in the same art circles for that whole time. Yeah, I mean, and that was one of the cool things that I saw in here is you have a variety. There's woodworkers there's of course painters but there's people painting on fabric you have um there's a sculptors i think there's even a glass blower in there um you have all these different people working with oils and with watercolors and you know chinese watercolors i mean there's there really is a cross-section of different types of art 
that are going into this. And it's the tip of the iceberg here on Delmarva. I mean, there are artists doing all kinds of things. When I first got here, you know, on the surface, it seemed like it was all ducks and boats and, <laughs> and chincoteague ponies and seashells or seascapes. Sure. You know, there was just sort of this sort of... Uh, expected type of art that you would find in local galleries. But in the meantime, there was tons of really good stuff bubbling under the surface. And in recent years, with all these uh, arts districts, like in Berlin, where they have the art strolls, uh, first Friday, is it? Uh, No, second Friday. Second Second Fridays. And first Friday in Snow Hill. um, They um, are really encouraging all kinds of artists. And so all these artists have finally come out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. And now we get to see them and buy them. And they're just, they've been amazing amazing all along now we just get to experience them you were saying uh that you'd known a lot of these artists for years i always find it difficult when i'm trying to interview someone to remember that i'm not bringing up like to get to ask them the questions that i need them to answer rather than to just tell me stuff i don't yet know about them so how did you kind of balance that when you were trying to think of how to talk to someone as if you didn't know them Well, I developed a a series of questions that I was going to ask every single artist because there were things I wanted to know. I wanted to know what their process was, um, how disciplined were they, because frankly, I'm not very (laughs) self-disciplined. And so I want to know, do you get up early in the morning? Do you do it at night? And and the answers are all over the, the map. But the other thing I did was I sort of went into teacher mode. I just, you know, I didn't even have notes, you know, after the first couple of interviews. I just sat down and, and knew the questions. And often their answers led to the other questions, or we just got talking about things that we were really interested in. And because I have a background in, in fine arts, it wasn't hard for me to, you know, just flow and think about, you know, what they were talking about and my own experiences. And I would sometimes share the same stories with them over and over right. and over again. <laughs> They've all heard my my stock stories <laughs> right. about learning how to make art and the art business and all of that. So that's... That's sort of how the the process of the interview went. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would imagine that um, artists might be protective of their process. Did you encounter any people being like, well, I don't want to talk about my process. That's sort of proprietary. Or were people just really, was everybody sort of open about what what they do? Um, most people were really open about it. Um, some were sort of mystified that I would ask that question because they haven't had to articulate it. Sure. Um, and you could tell who, um, who the artists were that were used to giving lectures or workshops. Um, artists who don't do that very often, it was really hard for them to talk about their work. Um, and also, there were some artists that were sort of on the verge of being professional versus hobbyist. And they especially, like, they just didn't think of themselves as an artist, and they didn't quite know how to talk about it. So that took some more pulling. Right. <laughs> and then there were a couple people who, like, hesitated at the last minute and said, I'm not sure I want to, I don't want, because I, you know, I would do a video as well that right. went online. And some of them didn't want their videos on. And I had to convince them, you know, your art's really good. Don't let that surface thing get, get you down. You need to get out there and talk about your art. Your art will shine through don't worry yeah like almost like a cheerleader almost <laughs> yeah man <laughs> I'm, I'm raising my fist going yeah man <laughs> well there there is this certain i think hesitance to to be pretentious you you want to not come off especially if you're already 
claiming you're an artist that that hurts right and then claiming you're an artist and an artist worth talking to about art i mean it's not just about self-consciousness it's about self-awareness and you're like i know that oftentimes when i hear people talking like that they are pretentious and i don't want to hear them <laughs> and the finding finding a way to like i can imagine how how that would have been difficult for them well you know it's funny um i one of the common experiences I had talking to all of these artists, I can think of maybe only one or two who was the stereotypical diva artist who was full of ego and pride and all of that. Most of them were just really humble people who love what they do. They care less, you know, they want to survive, they want to make a living, but they care less about making money than about uh, the process of making art. And, you know, I don't know if that, you know, some people might think that that is the true measure of a real artist, where integrity and commitment to what they're doing far outweighs what um, the market will bear. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, you know, it's hard to make a living as an artist. And so, um, so again, most of them were pretty um, humble. And, um, and those that were worried about sounding pretentious, sometimes they'd stop me and I'd have to edit that out. Right. And <laughs> but... Most of most of them, um, once they got talking about it, they sort of forgot about that. They were they were just talking to another artist. Because these artists are really good. I mean, that was I think one of the things that kind of struck me is there were so many. I mean, forty six people, forty six artists went into this, and they are all incredible, but in a very unique, individual sort of way. None of the none of the pages look like any other page, you know, and when I saw this collection, I was like, this is incredible. I mean, it really felt like a treasure trove of things that kind of opened my eyes to some artists that I had never heard of, but their work was incredible. Like Lillian Rippa, I, I had never heard of her, but then when I saw her work, I was like, how do I get this, you know? And, and Lillian Rippa, when I interviewed her, and this is, I guess, two years ago, she was 84. And this is a woman who practices her brush strokes every day. She does Chinese brush painting. And she does those strokes every single day before she does a painting. And she had the most energy. She was so positive. She was a delight to talk to. She, I learned a lot from her. She kept saying, there's no freedom without discipline. <laughs> and for artists, usually, you know, we're all, you know, free spirits, and right? all out there. <laughs> but she was incredibly disciplined. And actually, for all the flakiness that artists talk about, they're incredibly disciplined people. I interviewed, now they didn't get into the book because they just, they didn't really care about this kind of promotion. I interviewed these three guys who were skateboarders. And um, through their skating, they had learned a process of self-discipline. A skater will practice a move over and over and over again uh, until they get it just right or it's just as creative or it's just as cool as they can get it. Well, they these three uh, skater artists also kept incredible sketchbooks. They would sketch over, every day they would sketch. They were very prolific. And so, they, you know, for most people think of skater dudes as, you know, a bunch of dirty hippies or something, um, but they're not, and they are incredibly disciplined. So well, all the artists were. The notion of no freedom without discipline is something that we you know, talk about in writing all the time. Like They say things like you can't know the rules until you can't break, break the, the rules. rules until you know them and things like that. And I think... The larger part of that is that you, there are mechanisms for communicating. You, know, you don't want to get to the point where 
your communication just isn't playing the communication game anymore. You know, so you want to you want to live within a world where you can get your point across. And that world is governed by rules about getting your point across. And so I think that may be what she's getting at. With that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, Lynn Lockhart had this great saying. She said, long dead artists are still teaching me today. And it's only miles and miles of canvas that have gotten me where I am, right. and, which I just love. And, and that's sort of a timeless thing. I just listened to Walter Isaacson's book about Leonardo da Vinci. And it, it talked, had long chapters about how he did his brushstrokes and all these different things, cross-hatching, uh, chiaroscuro, which is the uh, deep shadows and, and how light plays on things, and sfumato, which is when he smudges things to make it look blended and make skin look smooth. And those are all things I learned in art school. And I thought, wow, I, I'm, you know, I'm sitting there painting and listening to this book. I'm still doing this smudge, smudge, smudge. I'm still doing it. <laughs> right. Part of a part of an ongoing conversation. It is. It is. And I, um, I'm about to give lessons to uh, my niece uh, this summer. And I've been thinking about the things that I will use. And I, I'm just going to go back to these old things that are, you know, you just have, those are the beginning things that you learn, the, br- the brush strokes, the colors, do the color wheel, you know, all those kinds of things. Well, that was one of the things that I felt when you talk about lessons, that was one of the things that I took away from this because I personally am not an artist not a lick of artistic sort of vein in me. I mean, I I think I took like drawing in college and I took a pass fail and I showed up every day and I think that, you know, and I I passed, you know. But um, what I found was in your telling of these artists' stories, you were able to pull out these incredible nuggets of advice, of wisdom, of... um, of discipline, of the process. And what I found was as I was reading it, I was like, man, that, that applies to me as a writer, you know? So what I found as I was kind of, as I was laying out the book, cause this is one that uh, I'm proud to have a, a, in the uh, saltwater media canon. Um, as I was laying it out and working on it, I was reading these pieces and I was like, wow, that what you were able to do with the Delmarva school of art kind of transcends art in a way for people who are creative that me as a writer, I'm like, oh, that's right. I have to put my butt in the chair every day. And I think that was one of the things that actually I think Lillian Rippo was talking about was it doesn't matter if you've had a bad day or the yesterday was bad. You have to be present today and practice. And if today's bad, there's going to be tomorrow. And you keep doing it because without that, you're not going to get anywhere. And so I was like, yeah, that that's right. That applies to me too. And so I just thought that was really interesting how you were able to kind of, I don't know if maybe that was intentional or not, but oh, yeah. it really Thank applies you. to the creative process. Thank you. I, I, well, that was sort of the thing about, you know, these are the lessons I learned from them. And so I went back to the interviews and I looked for those nuggets. I looked for those things. Um, and not just that had meaning for me, it just, you know, as I was doing all of those interviews, I kept thinking, you know, the reason why this is valuable to put on the air or on the internet is because these are lessons for anybody. You don't have to be an artist to learn from these people. They're telling you to be tenacious, to stick to it, and don't give up. Just do it. I mean, you hear that in athletics. You hear that in almost every industry. So my hope is that people who pick that up, even if you don't ever put a pen to paper or a brush to canvas, you will learn something that will help you. Yeah, and I think there was that moment where 
um, in one of the lessons, it was about following the muse that speaks to you because the muse that speaks to Tony is not going to be necessarily the one that speaks to me as a writer. But I read that and I was like, yeah, you know, you have to, you know, you don't have to follow a, a, a kind of this carved out path that is supposed to be for writers or for artists, right? You can, you can strike out and try something new and kind of follow what inspires you and that's okay. And I just thought, man, these are, these, this is really, this is a really good book for people who not just are art lovers or local art lovers, but really people who are interested in a creative process of, you know, however it might break out. Thank you. I appreciate that. You, you, you reached out to a bunch of friends, but as Stephanie was saying, that there, there was, it wasn't just one type of painting. How conscious were you of not including, of including so many different mediums? Uh, because they're all, they're all visual art, so visual art mediums. Well, so um, in the, on the um, magazine radio show, slash, I, there were a couple other people in there that were musicians. Uh, I did um, Brian Russo. Um, uh, I did a, um, somebody spells, I can't think of his first name. Uh, anyway, there was a, a saxophone player who plays up at Fager's Island. I did a guy who, uh, brings the Brown Box Theater here every summer and, uh, Kyler Tostin. Um, and so those didn't get into the visual art book just because I was trying to edit, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, um, I had a couple of criteria. Um, first was, um, uh, not mercenary, let's say commercial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, my sponsors uh, were um, a group of towns that have arts districts. And so I tried to spread it around and get it into all of their arts districts, you know, get artists from each of their towns to help promote those towns because they were paying for the show. Um, but I also was, I was trying to get um, diversity by heritage, which is hard because there aren't a lot of people um, representing all different heritages. Um, you know, Patrick Henry is a wonderful African-American artist, um, but it's hard to find other African-American artists. It's not that they're not out there, it's just hard to find them right. because they aren't necessarily uh, well represented. I think that's changing, and I hope it will continue. But I also was looking for a balance of men and women um, and ages. Um, I think we, the youngest was just out of college um, uh, from Salisbury University, and the oldest was... Uh, Lillian Rippa. Um, and I also, you know, tried to spread it around. If I, last week I did painting, I tried to do sculpture or something different the next week. Mm -hmm. or, or at the very least, if it was impressionist painting one week, that it wasn't impressionist painting the next week, if I could help it. Impressionist painting is by far the most popular, probably in our, uh, all of our country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we've just, once you've been sort of infected by that, uh, and I love impressionist painting, don't get me wrong, but once you've been sort of infected by that look, um, it, it's hard not to want to uh, achieve it. And so there are a lot of um, impressionist painters here. Um, and we are better for it. Um, they have these plein air painting uh, competitions once a year. And there are a number of artists that uh, in the book that do that. I wanted to talk a little bit about the plein air um art that we have from Easton to Ocean City that it's it's something that people are kind of coming to expect when they come here now and you've kind of seen that because it used to it was just Easton or St. Michael's was doing it but then all of a sudden in the last five or six years it's kind of caught on yeah the next one coming up is in April in Snow Hill um, and I guess it's I think it's in conjunction with their first Friday um, and you'll be able to see Kirk McBride down there, and I think Lynn Lockhart, and a lot of local artists will be doing that. But, but that one, 
I can't get into that one. Like they, they open it up for the artists to sign up in like January and it closes within a day and they give preference to people who'd been there before as mm. well. I think don't, and, and, or Ann Coates will have to correct me on that. And she will. And she will. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great show and it's great for people who aren't artists to go and watch people painting in the streets. Another great time to see it is here in Berlin um, during the Fiddler's Convention. You can see artists all around be- painting Berlin. Yeah, it's usually in September. Yes, I the think the same weekend as Sunfest. Uh, so it's, I guess that's the third weekend in September. Yeah, it usually year. runs like 20, around the 25th. I think last yep. year it was 25th to 28th mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it's incredibly popular. Um, I don't think it's peaked yet, though. Some plein air artists say it has, um, but... Uh, because it's so it's it's a big expense to go to these places and and bring all your supplies and then um, you know you have to be there the whole weekend so you got to pay to stay there and um, but um, I think it's really popular with the public so I don't think it's going anywhere quickly and so maybe the more um, established artists are starting to phase out of it mm-hmm. um, but again there are going to be some great artists in snow hill this uh coming april so it's a really cool opportunity for people to see what artists do you know to see how how they shape a painting how it comes to life i know when they have it here in berlin like well i'll just take a walk and i'll just kind of look at the canvas and like you know somebody's posted up in front of a particular shop and I'm like, that doesn't look anything like a shop. But then you come by like, you know, a couple hours later and now you're starting to see it kind of coalesce on the page. And it's it's a really interesting opportunity to to see the craft, which I think is something that writers, we would not want anyone to see our process. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and uh, you know, my hope is when people see these plein air things and the book, that if you had a an inclination to try art that you will. One of the great ways to try out painting for the first time is to go to one of these painting nights at a bar. I mean, they people have a lot of fun with those. <laughs> and they really do come away with things that they all look like the same painting, but they really look like something. It's not, you know, just like finger painting. It, it, they accomplished something in that hour, two hours that they were drinking and painting. <laughs> you can replace the uh, the the bridge over the, the, the old country bridge over the river with your tree against the moon or whatever <laughs> right, it happens right, to right, be. right 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 um, i wanted to talk to you a little bit about um the book itself i mean uh you actually designed you laid out the whole thing you picked the fonts you knew exactly how things were to lay out would you just talk a little bit about how as a graphic designer you approached actually putting the book together well so it was like a jigsaw puzzle you know, how to, to have each artist get parody. I wanted them to have this sort of the same number of images. A couple of artists also sent me images of their studio, and I included those maybe in the chapter title page. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, part of the, the, um, the challenge was that it was hard to find a book shape or book format that really went well with this. And so once I had figured out, okay, it's going to be a square book, I'm going to do it this way. In some ways, it's a very conservative design. <laughs> um, I didn't do any, um, uh, there's no fading out, there's no, uh, no bleeds, bleeds right. there's no layering. And so it's almost like a catalog. Like a, um, uh, if you were going to a big show in a, um, a museum, 
they would do a catalog of all the artwork in that particular exhibit. And they also would be very conservative in the way they laid it out because they'd want those paintings to shine. And so I sort of took a little bit of influence from that because I really wanted the artwork to stand for itself. Um, I designed a logo, and there are some elements throughout the book that kind of go with that logo, but it's subtle, and it sort of lays back, hopefully, um, and, and, again, lets the artwork shine. Yeah, and I think that was really evident if you look at, for example, Eric Saylor's uh, page of art. I mean, I think the way that you chose to do it, I think that conservative thing does let each piece stand and kind of pop out on the page, and so... You're not distracted by something bleeding off an edge or one picture kind of laying over top of another image. Each one gets its own footprint. Everything, every artist gets an equal footprint. And I think it was a really nice way of of packaging all of this incredible artwork. Thank you. Um, and the other thing that was hard to choose was when sometimes the artist would send three pictures or a group of pictures and um, it, sometimes... They didn't necessarily have the image that I would have thought of that really typifies their artwork. So if I was going to make one of them bigger, you know, I had to choose very carefully something that I thought was really, or if not typifies what they had done in the past, was where the direction they're going. Right. Um, well, I always think of iconic Kirk McBride, the the guy in the the the, the oyster tonger with the orange. Uh, sort of jumper, not jumpers, like the, the waiters, you know. Mm. I mean, to but me, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to remember what he sent, but I don't think he sent that one. Did I he? don't know if he did or not. I'm trying Let's to remember. See. I was Kirk really... was under... Was he under... Uh, freedom of Discipline. Yes, he was. Uh, let's see if I can find Kirk. Probably not. There, he did. You're right. Yep. And that, to me, is iconic. And there, there he gets this beautiful footprint right there. Yeah, and, you know, Kirk, I'm glad that we have the, the boat in there and the um, the twisted sycamore because his work is starting to um, very much go towards his travels. Um, he's gone all over the world. Right now he's doing a series on um, Havana and, and Cuba, which is really fascinating. It's just a beautiful series. Um, and you can see... Um, those works are in those works, these works, the where they came from kind of. So Yeah, and I remember I did the the Berlin does a holiday studio art tour. And I remember this past December, um, it's always the first Saturday in December when the when that happens here in Berlin. And I remember going to Kirk's studio and I'm just he's got an incredible he and Lynn have incredible studios. And I remember going into Kirk's studio and I look up on the wall, I'm like I've seen that before. And it was because, you know, I had laid the, you know, in doing this book, like I had a chance to see all of this cool art. And then I'm just saying, I'm like, yeah, I know where that one is. And it was just, to me, it, that has kind of become sort of like kind of synonymous with like, he has this really incredible eye with how the light plays on things and being able to take things that seem things that you might not even look at, but he makes you pause on it, which I think is sort of his talent. Well, and he has a really, to me, an interesting background. He started out in graphic design like I did. And when we started out, we're about the same age, we were using um, uh, ink pens to do straight ruled lines that were you had to use a dropper to put the ink in. And then we went to mechanical pens and whatever. But nonetheless, it was a process where you had to keep your space really clean. And he, today, he is the artist that I met out of all these artists who had the neatest 
office. And it's because he started out as a graphic designer or his studio was there, you know, nothing was out of place. It was perfectly neat. And I am not like that at all because my, my style is to splatter things. So everything is like chaos. A little Jackson Pollock. You <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> and so if I wanted to talk about, you were actually writing the book for a, a second. Um, you, did you give yourself like a word limit for the, like, how did you, how did you keep everything so kind of succinct? Cause Everybody has about the same amount of space and stuff like that. And that must have been tough to well, choose. Yeah. So, well, it started with the interviews that they had to be a certain length. And I guess they ran about eight minutes long. Um, and so, that you know, I started from that. But also in my background, um, I used to write television commercials. <laughs> and that teaches you to be very succinct and get things into 30-second bites or 10 second bites or 15 second bites. And so I knew that I had to keep it to a certain length or, and I also was trying to keep my page length count. down yeah. or the countdown. Yes. Oh, so so that, yeah, but... it was just keep editing. <laughs> <laughs> keep whittling it find, down. <laughs> find more places to cut. Excellent. Right. Well, and if I, I, I also, because I'm a, a designer, I would go through and look at the pages. I, I made them all small. Uh, in Microsoft Words, and I looked and I could see the sizes of the paragraphs. I was, that one's really big. I got to go back and try and say it more concisely. And often, when you write something, you find that the first draft is way wordy, and mm -hmm. like you take way longer to say what you could say with maybe one or one sentence instead of three or four. And so that's just the way. Chopping it, from the chopping right. from the bottom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the beauty of revision, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't revise an empty page, so you got to put stuff down to be able to kind right, of go right. back and mold it and shape it, you know? Well, and I would go, um, to be perfectly honest, you know, because I had the interviews to go from, I would cut and paste or copy and paste from the interviews and then reform that paragraph and, and, and sort of rejigger it into the shape I wanted it to be. And this is not something a writer should admit. Mm -hmm. And writing is my second art, though I really love to write. I hate paragraphs that have just like one little word at the end, hanging off the end. What is that? An orphan? They yes. call yes. that. In the orphan. <laughs> and that children, makes... children, no orphans and widows and orphans. Widows and orphans. Widows, yes. widows is at the top. Orphans is at the bottom. Right. And so I, I, you know, look at that. And I'm like, that can't look like that. I have to. <laughs> I've got to edit that. <laughs> that. And that's, it's probably dumb. But also, I think that people appreciate brevity. I think so. <laughs> I think you're supposed to say, and that's the short way of saying. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to say is you alluded to maybe considering to doing more. Do you feel like you've got another, do you feel like this is something you're going to do several of? or? Well, I, I, I would like to come back and do another one of these. I am um, harvesting other things from the Delmar Almanac. I am harvesting the history stories right now. And that's going to be harder to edit because um, they were about the same length, but trying to put them together in a book, I'm trying to decide, you know, do I want it to be linear in time um, or do I want to have the stories grouped by uh, sort of interest areas like... Um, I had a number of stories that were sort of about commerce on, mm. uh, and there were some that were about um, what I called rogues and what else? <laughs> rogues and reprobates. And there was, you know, bad guys that were, right. and they were some of the more fun stories to do because they were, you know, really bad. <laughs> right. 
Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in process with that one. That's that's super cool. It's, it's something that I've I've been considering doing myself. So you when you have so many things, why not repurpose them? And I think repurposing it is just a, a genius. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Stephanie. Well, now it's part of the show where you thank the guest. Well, Dana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about this project. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.